Hello and welcome to On the Record with Campaign Middle East. I'm Austin Allison, the editor of Campaign Middle East. You can find more episodes on Angami, who help us produce the show, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find out more about Campaign Middle East and the region's media, marketing, advertising, and brand communications industry on our website, campaignme.com, in our magazine, on our social channels, and through our webinars and events, as well as some other places I've probably forgotten. Visit campaignme.com and sign up for our newsletter to keep track of what's happening with campaign and the industry at large. In December of 2021, journalist, broadcaster, best-selling author, and critical thinker Malcolm Gladwell came to Dubai. He was brought in by campaign sister company, Motivate Talent, to speak at the World Conference on Creative Economy at Dubai Expo 2020. Gladwell is a world-renowned speaker, as well as being a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1996. He's the author of New York Times best-selling books, including Blink, Tipping Point, and Outliers. He also hosts the Revisionist History podcast. He's been included in the Time 100 Most Influential People list and recognized as one of foreign policy's top global thinkers. I met up with him before he went on stage at Expo to ask him about, well, as much as I could, including creativity, subscriptions, and advertising. But I started by asking him how, with a CV as expansive as it is, he would describe his job. How would you explain what you, what you do as Malcolm Gladwell? Well, I'm a storyteller. I mean, I'm a, uh, a journalist who likes to tell stories about interesting things. I mean, there's no, it's not more complicated than that, I don't think. What do people get wrong about what you do? Well, I don't, uh, I think some people are, have a kind of immediate suspicion of journalists that they have an agenda, um, some kind of ideology they're pushing. I don't really have an agenda. And I'm not interested in converting readers. I'm interested in um, entertaining and enlightening readers. It's a very different, once you have those goals in mind, I think it really changes the way you approach your audience. I'm not trying to win converts. Um, I just want people to think in an interesting way about um, their history, their culture, their lives. What makes a story interesting to you? What makes you decide to to pursue it? You've written about all sorts of diverse things from bomber planes to dog trainers to ketchup. Yeah. What well, like, it changes. About? You know, I'm recently I've gotten much more interested in character. Um, earlier in my career, I was very interested in, in novel ideas. I was very idea driven. But recently I've I'm some. I'm now. I'm very enamored of, of looking at um, things through the subject of personality and character. Um, I'm writing a book now that's about um, uh, Los Angeles, a period, a critical period in Los Angeles's history, and I'm writing it entirely through the perspective of three people. I would never have done that 25 years ago. I would have. I would have talked about the ideas that come up in that period of LA history. So which, it changes. Really which well. period? I'm interested in the, basically the thirties to the nineties, the kind of um, the middle part of the 20th century when Los Angeles goes through a series of very dramatic transformations. As I've gotten older, I've become much more, you know, I've adopted a very conventional view, which is, you know, the, the, the idea that history is very much shaped by by personality, by individuals. Um, and 
I'm more and more struck by how, by the fact that extraordinary individuals have extraordinary impacts on the world around them. Um, I was much more of a kind of, you know, structural person earlier on in my, I believed in large structural forces. Now I believe in personality. <laughs> do you think that's a, a side of sort of getting older and maturing? Yes, I do. I do think, you know, the more you, if you read, you know, to give a dumb example, the more you read about the Second World War, the more you realize, you know, if Churchill wasn't Churchill and Stalin wasn't Stalin and Hitler wasn't Hitler, the war, the war doesn't happen in the way that it I mean, it fundamentally, we could have gone in a hundred different directions and we went in the direction we went because of the very specific um, personalities involved. Um, so it's that kind of thing that's made me, there was nothing inevitable about those wars. Put a different person in the White House or a different person in the chancellery and you have a different outcome. Let's turn this to creativity. You're talking at WCCE today, mm-hmm. and you're talking about um, creative careers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was about how to keep creative careers going. You go into any ad agency today, and it's a very young place. Mm-hmm. How do you think creatives change as they age, and how can creatives keep mm-hmm. relevant? Well, this is exactly what I'll be talking about today, actually. It's funny you should ask that question. I'm giving a talk about the based on this singer Paul Simon and his 1986 album Graceland, which is the high watermark of his career, which he makes when he's 44 years old, um, which is very unusual in pop music for someone to do their greatest work in middle age, right? I mean, even the you know the Rolling Stones are basically finished creatively by the time they're 30. They put out their last great album when Keith Richards and Mick Jagger are 29 years old. Um, and I mean, you could argue, I don't know how much in the music, in the weeds you want to get with the Rolling Stones, but their great period of creativity is 68 to 72. Um, Paul Simon has another 30 years of incredible fertility. So the talk is all about, well, how does Paul Simon keep it going when everyone else stops? Um, and one of the things is that his willingness to experiment and to take, he takes much greater risks than his peers do. And he very deliberately embarks on experiments. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. But, you know, he's the guy who gets on a plane and goes to apartheid South, South Africa. None of his peers do. He's the guy who does a Broadway play. None of his peers do. A Broadway play about Latin music, not about, you know, he's the guy who starts out as an, as a folk musician and ends up, you know, delving into, uh, you know, world music. I mean, on so many different dimensions, he's just, there's a restlessness to him that, um, that most musicians don't have. And that restlessness is, it's a, High wire act, but it's incredibly, in his case, incredibly rewarding. And it means that he's still going strong even today. He has an album coming out in March, the age of 79 years old. So that's a kind of, I think that people falter, people's creativity falter, not in, as they get older, not because of any inherent lapse in their imagination, 
but just because they lose their restlessness and, and appetite for risk. Is that because people find what they're good at and keep doing the same thing? Well, there's just no reason. They get comfortable. I mean, I talk a little bit today about the importance of being uncomfortable. Um, they get comfortable. And once we're comfortable, we're very difficult to dislodge. So how do you dislodge that? If you're a creative who maybe feels that they've peaked, let's say you're a creative director in an ad industry, you've, you know, you've done well, but you've got a, se- a sort of secret niggling that your, your best days are behind you. Um, how do you sort of get that? I how think, do you change I mean, that? This idea of kind of shaking things up in midlife is terrifying to established professionals. But I think if you are someone who's in, who's concerned that your creativity is on the wane, I think it's necessary. I think I think we should both within organizations should be much more um, disciplined about shaking things up, about moving people around, about. But accept the fact that if you're in a creative industry, it is important to change your surroundings, creative surroundings on a regular basis, or you will get stale. In a way that it's not true, we wouldn't say that of a doctor, right? We want the doctor to do the same thing year in year. It's not a creative field. It's a field where, um, where there is a constant return, a constant linear return to experience. Um, the more you've done the same thing over and over, the better you are. The more cases you see of within your specialty, the more adept you are at diagnosing them and making sense of them. That's very different from a creative field where um, there isn't a constant linear return to experience. There, in fact, there's negative returns after a while if you're seeing the same thing over and over again. So I just think we have to accept that fact that the rules are different in the creative world. Now, the, the rules in the creative world are changing anyway. How are things like um, augmented reality, the metaverse, how do you think those are going to change the sort of the role of creatives and um, sort of specifically sort of commercial creativity, yeah. but sort of life in general as well? Well, I would say that a lot of these things, a lot of what's happened in the kind of internet age has increased the market for creative work. It has increased the value of creative work. Um, it's increased the range of creative work. Has it changed the nature of creative work? So I mean, I, you know, it's it matters more. You can make more as a computer programmer today than, I mean, fifty years ago that category didn't exist. Today, the very best and most creative computer programmers make many, many millions of dollars a year. Um, so that's a category that didn't exist before, but the the underlying nature of what drives the creativity of someone in that role is no different from what drove the creativity of a nineteenth century mathematician or a so I don't think that anything you know we we sometimes think that because the external dimensions of the creative universe are in constant flux that that the nature of creativity has changed. I don't think so the underlying Mechanism is the same. You are best known as a writer, and now maybe you're equally as known as a as a podcaster. Are you looking at other creative outlets? Well, I did do exactly what I was describing earlier. I did kind of shake it up in mid career. Um, you're right. Um, you know, I, but I've done it repeat. You know, I started life as a as a newspaper writer. Then I was a magazine writer. 
and then I wrote books, and then I became a podcaster. Um, so I have felt the need. No, those aren't dramatic shifts. It's not like I became, you know, a neurosurgeon or something. I was iterating within a same field. But, it, you know, those are, they're not insignificant shifts. They're different ways of thinking about story. And, um, and I think that's important. That, that has been an important part of, of my attempt to stay fresh. How do you think advertising fits in with, with journalism these days? Is there a changing relationship? I'm thinking that there's a lot more native advertising. You listen to podcasts and there's a lot more of the presenters talking about products themselves. There's a lot more sort of paid partnerships and things. How do you think that relationship is changing between, between advertisers and journalists, or certainly between advertising and editorial? I think those might be two slightly different things. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, what you're talking about in podcasts, for example, I mean, we're in the very earliest stages of trying to understand how advertising fits into an audio-only universe, an on-demand audio-only universe. I don't think, um, I don't imagine that five years from now, it will look the same. Um, you know, I, I think that what, I think that there's a certain kind of, clunkiness to what to the way advertising works in podcast right now um my sense is that the way we're moving is towards on the one hand advertising free stuff so subscription stuff and on the other hand um i think that it let the medium lends itself to sponsorships as opposed to scattershot advertising that a brand comes in and sponsors an entire season of a show and owns that space. I, that's that's something that makes much more sense to me. My point is, I think that it's way, way, way too early in this relationship between this new medium and the advertising world to know how it's going to, where it's going to end up. Um, and I suspect it'll change just because there is a, you know, advertisers are powerfully disposed to innovate within um, these kinds of new. Uh, genres are they I mean that's uh, again that's that comes back to advertising in itself is a arguably a creative industry certainly a, a lot of the people there are that sounds like that's sort of shaking up they're almost doing to the industry what you were saying Paul Simon did in his mm. his career that they're sort of the, when advertising gets a bit stale and we as the public become less receptive to the messages advertising needs to to shake itself yeah up I think bit. I mean I have tremendous regard I someone who my my uh, my first career intention was to go into advertising. I tried it, tried to get a job in advertising out of college. I have always had it, held it in incredibly high regard. What did you want to do? I wanted to be a copywriter. Yeah, um, and I still think of the ability to tell a story in thirty seconds is, I mean, is an ex you know when it's done right is about as high an art creative art form as you can imagine. You know, operating within those constraints is just. I mean, it's incredible. Like what what can be done by people who know what they're doing in that field. But um, yeah, I do think that there's um, there's an opportunity, an op a great opportunity for innovation here. But I, like I say, I have no no sense of what direction it'll go. You mentioned subscriptions. You know, what's your opinion on on subscriptions? Do you think that we as a do you think that subscriptions are becoming more prevalent? Well, I would I would worry that they're becoming too prevalent. I know that I'm very close to subscription overload right now. 
And I know that most of the things I subscribe to, I never use. And I recently went through my PayPal settings and realized I had like, you know, 50 things I was subscribing to, some of them dating back for years. I didn't even know, I, I didn't even realize I'd subscribed to half of them. So I do think, you know, there's a good deal of the subscription universe that's relying on a kind of behavioral um, trick, which is people subscribe to things and then forget they subscribe to things. And because of the, the automatic renewal function on your credit card, you, people have your money forever. I can't imagine that's going to last. I think there's clearly is going to be a shakeout. You know, right now I subscribe just screaming, streaming, TV streaming services to too many. And it's just both unnecessary, wasteful, and non-sustainable. I do want to subscribe. I'm happy to give my money to someone for a service. But do I really need to have an Apple subscription, a Netflix subscription, a Hulu subscription, uh, an Amazon subscription? Uh, I could go on. I have all these subscriptions. It's crazy. I have an ESPN subscription. I mean, it's crazy. So that that can't last. Stop. Right. That's, a, that's just a moment we're in. From your talk today, what do you um, what do you want people to sort of take away from it? What uh, is there a sort of lasting point that you'd sort of like to give to to creatives? Well, the point in which I end on in the talk is about the importance of being un- uncomfortable, um, and I think that's a really important point because the human tendency is to be comfortable, and that is to understand that that is that contradicts the. Um, uh, what it takes to be creative. And so creativity represents a kind of battle with our inner self. Um, And you have to address that conflict uh, and be be fine with it. Um, Left to our own devices, we will not be creative. Left to our own devices, we will be comfortable. Um, And that's something we need to recognize. So is it a creator's job to make themselves uncomfortable or to make other people uncomfortable Both. as well? Both. How do you make yourself uncomfortable? By being willing to, you know, to... I mean, this is where the part of the talk where I talk about, you know, diversity is crucial for creativity, but diversity is, by definition, something that makes us uncomfortable, right? Associating with people who are different from us, who think differently from us, makes us uncomfortable. So, like, you got to deal with that contradiction. Um, I'm, I think we should be fine with that contradiction. I think the benefit way outweighs the cost. But as human beings, we need reminding of that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On the Record with Campaign Middle East. I've been Austin Allison, the editor of Campaign Middle East. You can find more episodes on Angami or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find out more about the magazine and the whole industry on campaignme.com, at our magazine itself. Uh, on our social channels do sign up for our newsletters and uh, thank you very much for listening until next time stay safe and goodbye